I'll ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you're joining us for the first time in a while or maybe for the first time ever, we've been in a, a four-part series of which this is session three this morning, but we've been in a four-part series focused around Easter and Resurrection Sunday. Two Sundays of which the last two, we've been preparing our hearts and then Today, we realize exactly what we've been preparing ourselves for, and that is to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And then next week, we'll continue and, and complete this series by looking at how the resurrection compels us to live. So last week, I outlined for us those three main focuses of this current series, those being prepare, celebrate, and savor. The focus of the first two messages were to prepare our hearts, as I said, for today, for Resurrection Sunday. And so there we highlighted the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice, that without proper sacrifice, there can be no proper atonement for our sin. And as we continued, we saw in the words of John the Baptist that when Jesus came, he called out and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, declaring Jesus as the perfect sacrificial lamb. And in the words of Jesus himself last week, as we looked at John chapter 3, we saw in his nighttime conversation with Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted the snake in the wilderness, so would the Son of Man be lifted on a cross for our sins. That as we look to him, as we look to the very image of our sin, our shame, our guilt, we, by grace through faith, can be saved. And so in preparation, we've fixed our eyes on the cross. And now, this morning, we move to celebration. And in doing so, fix our eyes forward from the empty tomb. Because the empty tomb is the very reality upon which our faith hinges. And I've titled this morning's sermon, The Reality of the Resurrection. Hopefully as you came in, you were able to grab an outline. If not, you can simply take notes in your phone or on a separate piece of paper. But here this morning, we are going to see that the empty tomb is the very reality upon which our faith hinges. Now, there have been countless efforts to refute the resurrection because it simply does not line up with the logic of this world. But as we'll see this morning, it's not supposed to. We have ample evidence and reason to trust and believe in the resurrection, first of which is God's word itself and Jesus' testimony to God's word of his own resurrection. But second is that the tomb was empty. And there was no body. No body was ever produced post-resurrection testimony. And if those who were seeking to silence Jesus himself and also would have been seeking to silence his followers, if they could have produced a body, they would. But they were not able to. Third, and most compelling for me, is the very testimony of the disciples themselves. Their testimony to the resurrection is not something that pops up just a few weeks or, or months or years afterward. So it's not something that was concocted over a period of time, but it is immediate. And it is 
also a detriment to their very lives. That they go from being scattered and fearful and without hope to then boldly testifying to the resurrection at cost of their own life. All of the apostles would go on to be martyred for their testimony of the resurrected Christ. And so what could possibly they stand to gain for concocting such a tale if it were so? And why would they maintain a lie to the point of their own death? Lastly, we have the testimony of Paul, one who had achieved all he wanted in life and was on the fast track to stardom in his community, the religious elites and the Pharisees. And he immediately threw all of that away for the sake of testifying to the resurrected Christ. He who was on his way to persecute more Christians and silence more Christians instead made a 180 to turn the complete opposite direction in life. And the questions which I want us to tackle and clarify over the next two Sundays are, how do we live in light of the reality of the resurrection? And how does the resurrection of Jesus propel us to live out our faith? What we will see is that The resurrection and the ensuing response of the disciples have much to teach us about living out our faith in the midst of a culture that is directly opposed to it. See, it seems all too often outside of Easter, we don't really discuss or dwell upon the wide-reaching implications of this crucial part of our faith. And what I aim for us to see is the truth that we celebrate the resurrection daily as we walk in newness of life that was won for us by the resurrection. You see, the resurrection motivates us. It motivates us to live out key elements of our faith. And indeed, it has secured for us a life in which we find our true God-given purpose. This morning, as we move through John's gospel account, first seeing how Jesus' identity informed his understanding of his purpose, We will then move to see how this impacted his message to the disciples and how that informs our message to a dark and broken world. So I'll ask you to stand again in honor of the reading of God's word. As again, we are in John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. God, as we read your word this morning, as we see the truths that you proclaimed through Jesus, through your prophets, help us, God, to to cling to your word as that solid foundation for our resurrected life and help us to see how the resurrection influences and impacts and is so vital to our faith and help us then to live in light of these realities. Help us to not leave this place the same. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So this portion of text that we just read is coming right out of a controversy which Jesus himself has stirred up by daring to heal a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. How dare he? But the real issue occurs after this happens, in which Jesus is questioned by religious leaders because they see this man who has now been healed of his paralysis, pick up his mat and leave, and now they are questioning why he has done a work on the Sabbath, revealing to us again the the callous, hard hearts of these religious leaders of this day. And so these religious leaders, after questioning this man, then question Jesus as the one who made this man work and did a work to make this man work. So upon being asked why he was working on the Sabbath and why he was encouraging others to do so, Jesus answers there, just back up a few verses to verse 17, and we read Jesus' answer to these Pharisees. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. You see, Jesus is essentially saying, my father is always at work in this world and I am one with the father. Therefore, I am always at work. So this would be a seemingly innocuous answer to us, but this is a downright blasphemy to these religious leaders. And in fact, John narrates and exposes that fact there in, in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking to all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, this provides the backdrop to Jesus' response, which we read at the beginning. So Jesus does not back down from his claim to authority. He doesn't back down from the work that he did in healing this man. Rather, he shines an even greater light on his authority and explicitly states who he is and what he has come to do. However, as we saw last week and as we see throughout scripture, the wind blows where it wishes, so it is with the Spirit of God. And so the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, Israel and Judah when the kingdom was split or Israel when they were together, all of them could not see what God was doing right in front of them. Because God was sovereignly 
working in their disobedience. He was sovereignly working in their rebellion to bring about his ultimate work in the person of Jesus. And so we read there again, verse 19. So Jesus has equated himself with the Father and said that as the Father is always working, I am always working. We read, John explains for us that this was the very reason why the Jews wanted to kill him even more. In verse 19, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So in seeing their incensed anger and objection, Jesus doesn't explain his answer away, but he responds by explaining the relationship between the Son and the Father even further. So even further explaining to them how he is one with the Father. So here we see that the Father and the Son enjoy perfect unity with one another. And Jesus wants them to see this so that nothing is hidden from one or the other. And as we move forward this morning, we'll see how this truth that Jesus espouses here reveals the truth that the resurrection was God's plan for the Son. And that's our first point on this morning's outline, is that the resurrection was God's plan for the Son. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity is on full display through the resurrection story. Without God the Father's justifying seal of the resurrection, the atonement of Christ the Son is rendered null. Therefore, just as the crucifixion was God's plan for atonement in sending Christ to die... So the resurrection was God's plan for our justification and the Son's glorification. So Jesus here, being questioned as to his own authority, reveals that his authority and power are rooted in his perfect union with the Father. And when we consider this in light of the cross and in light of the resurrection, we see that Jesus has full knowledge of who he is, and exactly what the Father had sent him to do. And so may this bring us to our knees in humility that Jesus willingly endured the scorn and the shame of the cross because it was the Father's will. And we see this in the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53, which we looked at last week. You can write that off to the side. It'll be on the screen for you there. But Isaiah 53... We looked at at the end of last week's sermon and seeing Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. But we read this in Isaiah 53 in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So Isaiah 53, one of the most prominent messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, declaring the coming of the Messiah to make way for the, make possible the way back to uh, right relationship with God for the people of God. And so we read here, Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So just as the son and the father enjoy perfect unity with one another, And just as it was the Father's will to crush him and put him to grief on our behalf, the Son willingly walked in lockstep obedience with the Father straight to the cross. There was no deviation 
from the incarnation to the crucifixion, from Christ being born in a manger to him being put on the cross, there was no delineation. But don't miss the rest of what the Lord says right here through Isaiah in Isaiah 10. So we pick back up. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, so after he has been crushed, after he has been put to grief, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So y'all catch that? So after, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, so after the crucifixion, he shall see his offspring. So that crushing of the Lord and the grief that is being put on him and the offering for guilt is not where it ends, but instead after that, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper, shall prosper in his hand. All of this is future language. Out of the anguish of his soul, what will happen? He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, What will the righteous one do? Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, although it was the Father's perfect will to crush him, his offering for our guilt. Did you catch that right there? Did you see that? We know that there was no guilt in him, so therefore, who provides the guilt? Us. He provided the sacrifice. We provided the guilt. And so although it was the Father's perfect will to crush him, when he makes this guilt offering by offering up his soul, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, because of his perfect obedience to the will of the Father, the lamb-slaughtering, soul-crushing grief is not where it ends. Rather, his obedience to this anguish, to this grief, to this crushing is the very thing which then prolongs his days, is the very thing which lifts him up at the right hand of God the Father. We see this in Psalm 1610 as David is declaring prophetically, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So just as the crucifixion was God's plan for the Son, so too was the resurrection. We see this in Hebrews 12 too, if you want to make note of that. Hebrews 12 too, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So he despised that work which was necessary and good and the will of the Father and because of the joy that lay before him, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that lay before him, that motivated him to endure the cross, was the will of the Father to crush him and then lift him up as the first fruits of all of us to follow. 
Because as we move forward this morning, we see that just as the tomb was not where it ended for Jesus, neither does it have to be where it ends for all of us. That Christ arose as the first fruits. Therefore, the harvest that follows is us. You may ask yourself, so why, why is it important to remember this? Why is it important to remember that just as the crucifixion was God's will, so too was the resurrection? Well, this is important because we have a tendency to take even the most obvious things which are intended to bring God glory and we have a tendency to somehow make them about ourselves. You see, in our celebration, let us not forget that this was God's plan and this was God's design and this was all done in obedience to the Father's will for God's glory and our good. You see, the crucifixion and resurrection are not solely about what God did for us. Because when we dwell on that as the key factor, when we dwell on that as the one thing, then who is made to be most important in that? Us. But the crucifixion and the resurrection are about what God did to glorify himself through us. To make it even possible that we could come before him. Because as we keep reading in John 5, we see what the implications are for us. We pick back up in verse 20, once again. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. So that you may marvel. So Jesus says that as God is working, he is doing, he is going to show even greater works through me. Why? So that you may marvel at his grace. So that you may marvel at his work. So that you may marvel at what he's accomplished. Verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. And whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, so that's saying really important. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So here we see that for those of us who trust in the Son, that is Jesus, those of us who honor him, who hear his word and believe in him, pass from death to life. We join him in that resurrection. Therefore, for those of us who are in Christ and Christ is in us, just as the resurrection was God's plan for the Son, resurrection is God's plan for the church. This is at the heart of the gospel message that throughout the New Testament we see this is how we can be made right before a thrice holy and just God that we may be able to glorify him as he intended from the beginning. 
So just as God has been at work from the beginning to fulfill his promise to Eve that one would come from her who would crush the head of the serpent, this is the crushing blow. This is our story. That we are able to glorify him because of the work that he did in crushing and then glorifying the Son. And this is what we see in Ephesians 2. You can turn there. Keep your finger there in John because we're coming back to John. But I'd encourage you to turn to Ephesians 2 or you can make a note of it. It'll be on our screen. But you have, we, just, we, we have to see this together. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 7. This is a, a passage that we reference frequently. But it means so much more in light of what we celebrate today. So Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So, I mean, if, you, if you're the kind that circles stuff or underlines stuff in your Bible, I would circle and underline, you were dead. All right. In the trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked. So, whose fault was the death? Whose fault was it that we were walking in death? Ours. So, in which you once walked... And so he's talking to a church here. So this is full of redeemed people. And he's encouraging them with this. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So who's excluded from experiencing and walking in death? Nobody. That's, how our, that's our nature. That's how we're born into this world. And he says... All of us, this is the testimony of all of us that we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then we get verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. That would be another spot to underline and circle right there if, you're, if, that's, if that's your thing. Underline and circle. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So again, we were dead in our trespasses, right? Made us alive together with who? Christ. So not by anything that we accomplished, not by anything that we were able to do, but what we were able to do caused us death. And what he has done when we join with him, when we are together with Christ, does what? By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, in our sin, we have death. But because of God's boundless love, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and didn't stop there. Not only did he raise us up, he seated us with him. And where did he seat us? In the heavenly places. So in Christ, God has shown what his plan is for those who follow him. That we, completely by his grace, go from self-deserved death to eternal life with him in the heavenly places by his grace. 
You see, the resurrection was the Father's plan for the Son. So too is it His plan for those of us who are in Him. But the question that looms over all of that is, are you in Him? Because if you're not together with Christ, then you're still where? In your death, in your sin. Jesus himself outlined this back in verse 24 of John. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life, which means that those who hear but don't believe are still dead in their sins and face judgment. This is all necessary to understand because it's what makes Resurrection Sunday such good news. See, Jesus outlines this a few chapters later. If you'll turn to John chapter 11. So in John chapter 11, we have a a very famous story. Jesus has a friend named Lazarus. And Lazarus is sick. And his sisters send word to Jesus, hoping that Jesus would come and do something about Lazarus' sickness. And then Jesus responds to those sisters in verse 4 of John chapter 11. You see that right there? But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus reveals here that this is not some normal bout of illness nor a normal interaction that's getting ready to take place. He's telling them that this is not a normal thing. But he shows that God is doing something in this to glorify himself and to reveal something about Jesus in and of himself, right? That is glorifying himself. So Jesus then proceeds... To remain where he is, he hears about his friend Lazarus, Lazarus is sick, and he remains where he is two days longer. And then he still has to make the journey to where Lazarus is. So he stays two days and then has to make the journey, and Lazarus in this time dies. And then we read this interaction between Jesus and Martha, so that... Jesus gets there and Lazarus is dead and everyone's mourning. Verse 23 of John 11. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, that question that Jesus asks Martha is what looms over us on Resurrection Sunday. Do you believe this? You see, Jesus would go on to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb still wrapped in burial cloth. We talked about that in our resurrection service, excuse me, our sunrise service. I guess you'd call it a resurrection service this morning. But Lazarus comes out of the tomb still wrapped in his burial cloth, face covered. Why? Well, in the sunrise service, we saw how 
that the point that Jesus' burial cloths were folded and, and neatly laid and, and that showed that the body wasn't taken because those who took it would not have taken the time to unwrap it and then also make themselves unclean by touching a dead body. And it showed that we are referencing back to this, that Jesus walked out on his own accord, under his own power, with dignity and power. But what does it show us here in the story of Lazarus? It shows us that Jesus only delayed the inevitable in Lazarus' life. Because Lazarus died again. See, death is a reality that we all face. But it doesn't have to be final. See, the message of the cross and the message of the tomb is that if you trust in the ways of this world, you'll get what you've always had, death. But if you trust in the work of Christ on the cross, you get what you never deserved, eternal life with him. Because the resurrection is God's plan for us. Therefore, the resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection. That's our next point for this morning. That the resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. As I said, Lazarus died again, but it wasn't for good. Meaning it wasn't for final. So, so too, when we die to ourselves and crucify our flesh with its lusts and its greed, we find true, abundant, everlasting life in Christ. You see, his resurrection is the final stamped seal of approval from the Father. And when we trust in the work of Christ on the cross, his stamp of approval becomes our guarantee. Paul outlines this in what is the predominant chapter on the resurrection. Keep your finger there in John, because we're going to come back to it one more time here in a little bit. But 1 Corinthians 15, I'll encourage you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. It's the church in Corinth struggling. They need to be reminded of several things. But here Paul explicitly outlines for them how crucial the resurrection is to our life. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So can we ever separate ourselves from that original gospel message? No. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Remember what we talked about this morning. If we, it's a basic principle of biblical interpretation and Bible reading. If you see something repeated, it's important. Verse five, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So Paul starts off with reminding the church that the gospel which he preached to them is everything. The gospel which they received, in which they stand, by which they are being saved. Then he challenges their application of the gospel by essentially saying, 
if you still adhere to the gospel that I preached to you, unless your faith was false to begin with. And then Paul then goes on to make that statement there at the beginning of verse 3, that he preached as first importance that which he at one time responded to himself. And what is it that Paul is preaching? What is Paul delivering? The gospel. Yes, but he's preaching God's word. He's pointing to the exact places where Jesus was pointing as evidence for his resurrection. Paul is preaching the resurrected Christ. He's preaching God's word and says as much as he breaks down the gospel in verse 3 through 5. I deliver to you the first important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Here we see that the resurrection compels us to hold fast to God's word. Because it is God's word that reveals to us, first and foremost, the truth of the resurrection. It is God's word that Jesus pointed to as evidence and as proof for his coming resurrection. And so we know that God has revealed himself to us in his word. And this is Paul's foundation for encouraging the church at Ephesus. This is Paul's foundation for correcting the church at Corinth. And this was Peter's admonition to the crowd in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost as he stood firmly on the resurrection of Christ and preached God's word in light of the resurrection. And this is where Jesus pointed the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. As we see two disciples despondent, discouraged, leaving Jerusalem, trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And Jesus walks them through God's word and points to himself at every point. And as he sat there leading them through God's word, showing them how it had pointed to him all along. We see this in Luke 24. The disciples respond after Jesus leaves them. Were not our hearts burning within us as he was explaining the scriptures? The resurrection compels us to hold fast to the faithful word of God as our source of truth and as we'll see next as our testimony. So pick back up in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So it was the word of God that inspires belief. In our hearts. It is the word of God that changes hearts. It is the word of God that takes hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh as his spirit moves forward from his word. And so, here, as Paul points to those who bore witness to the resurrected Christ, including himself, he points to them as examples of those who didn't just witness the resurrection, but he points to them as those who then declared the good news of the resurrection. 
so that more could believe, as indeed was God's sovereign design, that Jesus would appear to these few so that they may testify to his goodness and glory that others may believe. You see, this is God's design. It was not God's design for us to see the resurrection. It was God's design for us to hear witness and testimony of the resurrection so that his word may affect change in our hearts. Therefore, as we, as God's church, as those who have been resurrected from death to life, are compelled, we are obligated, we are duty-bound to do the same thing, to bear witness to the truth that Jesus is alive and that by his sacrifice and resurrection, we are justified before God the Father and raised to new life. You see, God sovereignly works through our resurrected testimonies to shine the light of the glory of the gospel and bring others to faith. God is sovereignly working in our resurrected testimony. So as we bear witness to the gospel, as we bear witness to what he has done in our lives and is doing, he uses that according to his sovereign purposes to bring others to faith in Jesus. So Jesus, let's go back to John. John chapter 20. I know you're saying to yourself, when are we actually going to get to like the resurrection, right? <laughs> so, John chapter 20. So Jesus, in John 20, 17, after revealing his resurrected self to Mary Magdalene, tells her to go to my brothers and tell them. Now, this is where we wrapped up in our sunrise service. And when he arrives to the place where the disciples were, she goes when Mary arrives to the, the place where the disciples were, she goes from mourning the death of Jesus to testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. And she says, instead, her first testimony in John 20 was they've taken the Lord. Now her testimony is, I have seen the Lord. And what Jesus does next in his appearance to the disciples brings us to our final two points for this morning. That as we testify to the resurrection and his work of resurrection in our lives, it anchors us. You see, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So notice that they're in a dark, locked room because of their fear. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples were glad, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So, notice, it's in the evening. Can we touch on this last week? That John constantly uses this theme of dark and light to show spiritual darkness and, and the light of the gospel. Just as we start at the beginning of chapter 20, Mary comes to the tomb in the dark and then leaves by this time it being light, having declared that she has seen the resurrected Lord. So now these disciples are fearful, huddling in this room, locking the door because of their fear, trying to decide what to do with their lives, trying to figure out what to do with, about this testimony that Mary has borne witness to. And Jesus appears in their midst. So they're in darkness 
Watch this. So as these disciples are sitting there in this dark room, terrified from what they witnessed and having to see their savior, their leader, hoisted on a cross, bearing the weight of their sin and our sin, they're terrified as to what to do next with their lives. They've left home, family, job, trade, all for the sake of following Jesus. And here they are thinking, what do we do now? He's dead. And they were sure he was dead. Now they hear Mary bears this witness of what Peter and John were just there. And then they leave and Mary bears witness that she's seen Jesus face to face. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is right there in their midst. And the first words out of his mouth inform our next point. Jesus says, peace be with you. You see, the resurrection anchors our peace. There is no peace in this world apart from Jesus. For centuries, people have sought peace in all manner of things. People seek to find peace at the bottom of a bottle, at the end of a needle. People seek to find peace in the arms of a lover. People seek to find peace by matters of war. People seek to find peace by enacting their own way of thinking. For centuries, people have sought peace for all manner of ways and in all manner of things, but there is nothing in this world or in and of ourselves that will satisfy. You see, the people wanted a king on a war horse that would radically secure peace through the least peaceful way possible. They wanted a king on a war horse, but what they got was the Lamb of God riding on a donkey. They wanted a powerful king lifted high on a throne, they got a suffering servant lifted high on a cross. They wanted an everlasting kingdom of one nation. He established his church that we may testify of his gospel and be made of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. This is the peace that was brought to those who are far off and the peace that was brought to those who are near. The cross is empty. Can we raise that? Screen real quick. I didn't, uh, I didn't warn our tech team that I was going to do this, but can we raise that screen real quick? Because I want us to, to see. We see other faith traditions. They have a crucifix, a, a Jesus fixed on the cross, but we purposefully have an empty cross. Why? Because the cross is empty. But so is the grave. And there's our grave there as well, the baptism, symbolizing our death and resurrection in Christ, symbolizing everything that Christ accomplished in this time. So the cross is empty, so is the grave. The empty cross is our invitation to come and die. The empty grave is our promise for peace of what awaits after us. See, finally, notice how the resurrection compels us to hold fast to God's word where we see that we have a rock-solid foundation for and promise of peace through the resurrection, all of which informs our final point, that the resurrection compels us to bear witness. The resurrection compels us to bear witness. Notice Jesus' words there in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So just as I bore witness and testified to the glory of the Father, 
So you too are now sent to bear witness to the glory of the Father. Just as I was lifted on the cross, so you too must come and die. Just as I was raised from the grave, so you too will find true life in me. Just as I was sent into the darkness to be the light, so now I send you to shine the light of the gospel. See, two things before we leave. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, Leave this place rejoicing in the peace and the assurance and the purpose and the identity and the message of the resurrection. Second, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you'll leave this place with none of that. And my prayer is that God has revealed the glory of the gospel to you this morning, taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh and that you will respond accordingly as we wrap things up. Find the person who invited you, or if you weren't invited by someone, came under your own accord, find me, because we want to celebrate what God has accomplished in your life today, if that's the case. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for everything that this day symbolizes and signifies. We pray, God, that as we now worship you through song and as we worship you in obedience to taking the Lord's Supper that you would move hearts to repentance both those of us who are saved we know that we need to constantly repent because of our sinful flesh but that you would also move to repentance those who are not saved reveal yourself to them give them a heart of flesh and remove their heart of stone But no matter what, God, help us to celebrate and live in light of the resurrection. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.